Good morning. How's everyone doing? Glad to see you. My name is Pastor Daniel. Uh, we are continuing our series in the underestimation of sin. We're in week four. Uh, before we get into that, I wanted to just take a few minutes and have a little, you know, a little family time, a little, little family conversation. We're, we're all in the circle of trust here, right? It's not, not that many people watching online, I'm sure. Um, I, I want to talk about where we are, uh, you know, as a church. Obviously, as a church, we have uh, and are, we have and are facing uh, challenges in just being a church body. And some of those challenges are things that I think are pretty normal for churches in America over the course of the last two years. Uh, it's certainly been a challenging time to be a church in the United States. And I think some of those challenges are unique to us in this season and some things that we've gone through. And so uh, I just want to talk about some things that are going on and things that you've probably seen and um, see if I can kind of catch you up on those things. Talk about what uh, you know, is, is kind of central to our attention and our focus right now as leaders in this church. So uh, one of the things I think that's very, probably the single most common question that we are working on right now as leaders is assessing how well we love each other in this church, how well we love each other. And you think, man, that, of all the things you could work on, that's what you're working on. Like, yeah, that, that kind of dominates our conversation right now. And I, and I think it's because it leads to a lot of other things as a church. Jesus would say that the world would know you and I as believers of Jesus Christ based on how we love one another. And so it's central to our identity as followers of Jesus as we proclaim this message of the gospel to a lost world that, that we love each other well. And if we can't love each other well, we probably don't have a lot of hope that we're going to love other people well. So we've got to be able to do that well. And so we're looking at things like, how do we ensure that if you show up here or you're online, how, how do we ensure that we can integrate you into the body of Christ, which is the church? And, and really, I mean, to be integrated it starts with you understanding and I, me understanding when we come in the doors that we're, we're really part of this church. We're, we're loved by other people. I mean, you, you're not really a functioning member of the body in the Bible until you're serving and exercising the spiritual gifts that God gave you for the edification of the body, until you're loving the people around you, not just your friends. I mean, those are the easy people to love, right? But, but you're loving the people around you that maybe are a little tougher to love. You're probably not that person. It's other people. <clears throat> until we're giving of our time and our money, until we're hurting when, when other people in the body are hurting. I mean, when those things start to happen, then a, a church really begins to function. The people in the church begin to, to function the way that we see it in the Bible. And so, you know, to, to do that, um, we're looking at a lot of little changes and things that we're doing in service and in the life of our church to try to to make sure that we're all on the same page and to make sure that you understand that you're loved here. And so one of the things that you, we just talked about actually is, you know, we're, we're printing up a prayer list and we're doing that so that we have an opportunity to pray for one another. I mean, these prayer requests have been going to a prayer team for quite some time, but we want to give you an opportunity to pray for other people. And we're doing these things. We sent a video out maybe a week or two ago. Maybe you saw this. We, we try to email those out. It's just a video about kind of what's going on. I think uh, I was in the front of the Nile and we were talking about it. And I'm calling those fireside chats, which is ironic because there's no fireside. Uh, but we are in Bakersfield, so there are many times that it feels like you're at a fireside if you're just outside. 
Uh, maybe as it gets colder, we'll get a fire. But, but just sending you guys videos to talk about things that are going on and, and, and what's happening in the life of our church and how appreciative we are of getting to do church with you. And you're going to notice changes in our service. Um, we're adding different elements to this service because we want to make sure that you understand that when you walk in the doors here, our intention is that you're being encouraged and you're being recharged and you're being refreshed and, and that that thing that Jesus says about all who are heavy laden, all who are weary, come to me because I have rest for you. The world is tough. The world is hard. Monday through Saturday is crazy. And yet we're supposed to be on mission for God. And so when you come in here on Sunday, that you would be recharged and you would be loved. And listen, it's, um, I was having this conversation with someone recently. We were talking about, there are, uh, Terry mentioned it, somewhere between 200, 300 people that watch us online every week. And um, we don't know the exact number because we only see sessions. We don't know how many people sit behind a screen. There's a lot of people uh, that participate in our church from afar. And some of those are for health concerns. And some are protecting us because they have symptoms or they're sick. And some of those are out of the state and out of the country. But there's also a portion, to be frank, that just don't yet see enough value in coming into a physical service to go through the chores of like, you know, cleaning the mess off of every kid's face and trying to comb their hair down and bring them in because that can be hard and hectic. And, but it's not, it's not enough. And so, I, you know, we've been talking about, like, oh, what does that look like? And I was talking to a young guy at another church and he's like, you know what you got to do at churches is we've got to, to teach them the discipline of coming to church and that it's the duty of the Christians. And I was like listening and, you know, I was like, mm, that's not unbiblical. I don't know if that's the answer. I think maybe the answer might be that we have to make Sunday morning so attractive in terms of how well you're loved that there's no way you'd miss Sunday morning here. Because when that happens, I don't have to teach you duty. Amen? Because I wouldn't miss the opportunity to see you. I was sitting with uh, the elders and some leaders over the course of the last couple of weeks talking about you know, our church and our direction, because we, we genuinely believe that God has just tremendous kingdom impact that he wants our church to fulfill in this season. And we were talking about some things and I said, you know, a question for you guys. If, if people in the church or telling people outside the church about our church, what makes it unique and what makes it special, and they can only tell them one thing, what do you want them to say? And I had lots of good answers, right? Oh, biblical preaching, or we're about the Bible, or we're gospel-centered, or, you know, got, got good this, or the good that. I was like, those are all good. That's not what I want. What I want, and this is just me, so you may not share this conviction. When people talk about our church, I want them to say, and they love me so well. They just, I just love me ferociously. They love me with a tenacity, they just chase after me to love me. Because when I was far from God in college and I walked into a church, to this day, I can't tell you a single sermon that that preacher preached. I can't even tell you a single illustration he used. I can't even tell you if he was good at preaching or not actually. But I can tell you this, man, those people love me ferociously. And I didn't deserve it. I do anything to earn it. And I did a lot of things to not earn it. And they just chased me down to love on me some more. And it changed my life because that's the gospel. 
I don't want to be a church that's just known for loving you ferociously. Like you can't get away from it. Like stop loving me. Yes, that kind of love. Because I believe that's at the heart of the gospel. So we're working on that. You're going to keep hearing from us in different ways to try to continue to reinforce the message that you're loved and that at the heart of chasing Jesus is loving one another and loving a world that is very broken. So with that said, um, you're going to get some other videos that are coming out. Like we, we have this really cool opportunity um, that you're hearing about with this concert that Life FM is putting on at our downtown campus. Um, we're going to send some stuff out uh, this coming week about our downtown campus. You know, one of the things we've been trying to figure out is like, what does it look like to, to reopen ministry downtown? We, we've had these phenomenal facilities downtown. We have a, uh, the Nile Theater and, and these kids' spaces. And, you know, for 18 plus months, we've been paying the mortgage and the rent on those places and just trying to find ways to leverage them for kingdom impact. And so we moved our Celebrate Recovery ministry down there, which has actually been really good for CR. Uh, and looking at other ways, like how, how do we use this to impact the kingdom? And we had this crazy opportunity recently where uh, a church plant that was meeting downtown got kicked out of the facilities the week after they started doing weekly meetings, which is about how California works, right? And, uh, and we we're like, hey, we just so happen to have something available on Sunday mornings for the next few months. And so we got the opportunity to, to um, move this church plant into the Nile from Sunday morning to Sunday afternoon for a few months just so they have a place to meet. And we, we were really encouraged because we're pretty wide open to trying to find ways to impact downtown with the gospel. And so you're gonna, you're gonna get a message here in the next week or two about uh, us asking you for help of ideas and brainstorming. And th- those of you that have a heart for downtown Bakersfield, look, we wanna hear from you and work with you and try to figure out what it looks like to continue to grow that ministry. Um, but we're going to move into this, uh, this, this series because I probably used up enough of my preaching time. <clears throat> we're in week four of the underestimation of sin. And so uh, one of the really fun things is that in this season with some of the stuff that's gone on, you know, we had already planned to do underestimation of sin. And so now it's our job as preachers to figure out how to preach to you for six weeks on sin and make it encouraging. No challenge there at all. So in the last couple of weeks, you know, we've been, we've been studying different aspects of, of what it looks like to underestimate sin. And last week was, uh, Pastor Jonathan was talking about the path of sin, the path of sin, and this idea that uh, as you begin to walk down the path of sin, which always starts with something uh, mild, never looks like a big decision, looks like a small decision, uh, it's not, not a huge deal, but there's always another step, and there's always something that's pulling you a little further, and, and, the, and the lie that the devil tells you is that once you're headed down that path that you can't turn back now, you've already gone this far, you might as well keep going. And we looked at the story of King David. Now remember, story of King David, King David is like the prototype human of Jesus, Okay, King David is the guy in the Bible who says is the most who is after God's own heart. This guy loves the Lord. And yet what do we watch? We watch him walk down this path of sin. It starts with just a lack of self-discipline. He's not where he's supposed to be. He's not out of the battlefield with his men. He stays back home. He sleeps in all day, gets up in the afternoon. None of us do that. And looks out from the balcony, sees Bathsheba, Starts a sequence of events, right? He knows who she is. He knows that she's married to actually one of his very good friends. He does not care. He brings her in. He has an affair. He impregnates her. He tries to cover it up. That doesn't work really well. And so step after step after step after step down the path of sin, he ultimately murders 
his friend Uriah. Now, what couple things you may or may not remember from that sermon or know about the story. The first is that Uriah is not simply a soldier in his army. Uriah is one of his mighty men. Uriah is one of about 37, 38 guys that went everywhere with David. When he was, being, when he was in exile, being chased by Saul, being chased around the countryside, ended up in a foreign country, Uriah was with him that whole time. Man, Uriah is his ride or die. I mean, Uriah is his, his guy. So he's not simply taking a really loyal soldier and, and murdering him. It's his, it's his good friend. The second thing is that we never got to the end of the story where Nathan the prophet comes and confronts David about his sin and calls him to repentance. That's the next chapter. But you know when that happens, roughly a year has already passed. That's not like two weeks into this thing. So David has lived with this hidden secret sin for a year. Side note, man, thank God for Nathans in our lives. Yes? Some of y'all are married to your Nathan. <clears throat> for some of you, it's a good friend. But thank God that God continues to use people to call out sin in our life and call us to repentance when we're headed down that road. But think about a year in this hidden sin where you've betrayed a good friend. I mean, you've just, you've gone from King David, man after God's own heart, to completely wrecking your life in the worst way possible. And some of you can relate to that. We've been there. Amen? Just wrecked your life in the worst way possible and thought, man, there's no way back. And then God, through Nathan, calls David to repentance. And I want you to hear this. If you didn't hear this last week, I want you to hear this this week. The lie that the devil tells you over and over again is that you're too far down that path. And I just want you to hear that that is not the Bible. The God of the Bible says there's no point down that path in which he cannot save you. You've never gone too far for a loving father to take you and restore you to wash you and to cleanse you and make you white as snow. The lie that you'll keep having whispered in your ears is that you're too far gone, you might as well keep going, and that is not the God of the Bible. What we're gonna look at today is Psalm 51. Now, this is David writing a psalm about being confronted by Nathan in his sin. So this is at the depth of his sorrow. It gets called out, it gets drug out of the dark, it gets put in the light, and all of a sudden, all of the sorrow and all of the shame and all of the lament comes pouring out, and David writes this psalm for us. And it's very interesting. We're gonna, we're gonna read it in a certain context because there's a lot to learn here. I want you to write these four things down about unrepentant sin real quick. Um, I'm gonna talk about them, but I don't want you to miss them. Four things about unrepentant sin. We're gonna see this from David in this psalm, explains it to us. It is the, this is the agony of sin. You're going to hear him talk about this lament. Number one, unrepentant sin challenges our identity. It literally challenges your identity. It attempts to, it attempts to distort who you are. It challenges our identity. Number two, unrepentant sin breaks relationships. That's what it does. It breaks relationships. It interrupts relationships. Number three, unrepentant sin kills our joy. So even as believers who have been freed from the bondage of sin, unrepentant sin kills your joy. It may not kill you. You've been saved. You've been sanctified. But it will kill your joy. And number four, unrepentant sin stops spiritual growth. It stops all spiritual growth. And we'll, we'll go through that as well. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read Psalm 51 to you. 
uh, authored by David right after he's been confronted in his sin. So what we're going to do is a little exercise. We're not going to get too new agey here, but you are going to close your eyes. Don't worry. We're still going to read the Bible. So close your eyes. And what I want you to do uh, before I read this and as I read this is I want you to picture in your mind having betrayed someone who's closest to you, having done the unthinkable, having absolutely wrecked your life. Now, for some of you, that may come very easily. You may have already walked through that multiple times. That's absolutely okay. I understand that's painful. I want you to hear David. He's at, at the depths of this devastation. And if not, I just want you to imagine that you're there. You've betrayed someone very close to you. It's all getting drug out in the light. And I just want you to hear David speak about this because what's going to happen in this psalm is he's going to go from the agony of sin to the absolute joy of repentance. And you're going to hear it by the end. Close your eyes. Here you go. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then the bowls will be offered on your altar. Amen. Let's just walk through these verses, and I want you to see here what is going on in David's life as David is confronted with his sin that he's been hiding. He says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. He's saying, this is only by your power because of your love for me that this would even happen. Forgiveness from God is because of God, not us. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me of my sin. Because sin, and you can relate to this and I can relate to this, sin makes us feel unclean. And so the constant use use of imagery by David about cleanliness and being washed 
means scrubbed clean is this idea that when we are in sin, we feel unclean. He says, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before you. One of the problems with unrepentant sin is that it begins to challenge our identity. When we're holding on to sin, it is very difficult to have an identity as a believer of someone who's been freed from the bondage of sin. Why? Because we're clinging to it. So let me give you an example. of We have plenty of examples. We, we have some even from America at the end of slavery here. But if you even go back to further to the Israelites, they were freed from Egypt in which they were enslaved. And they get out into the desert as free people. And then the moment there are problems and there are conflicts and sin enters, they begin to lose their identity. And what do they want to do? They vote to go back to Egypt, back into slavery. Hey, you know what sounds like a good idea, guys? What if we just went back um, to the slave masters that beat us and didn't actually pay us anything and made us work seven days a week? But, but, but for you and I, as, as believers in Jesus Christ who have been redeemed and who have been cleansed and, and, and our sins have been washed and we've been freed from the bondage of slavery, when we hold on to sin, so not when we make mistakes, we're going to do that, but when we make mistakes, we know that we have sin and we hold on to sin, it begins to challenge our identity. Am I really free from sin? Man, I can't seem to stop sin. I can't seem to stop this habitual sin. I can't seem to get out of it. When we hold on to that, it begins to wonder internally, am I really saved? Am I really a child of God? Have I really been freed from the bondage of sin if I just keep holding on to it and I keep going to it and I keep going back to it? Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Sin breaks relationships. It breaks and distorts our vertical relationship with our Heavenly Father, and it impacts horizontal relationships with other people. Certainly, and we'll get to the theology of the statement in a minute, certainly there were other people that David sinned against in this process. But primarily, he sinned against God, and he distorted and broke his relationship with God in the process. It reminds us, sin reminds us that we, or he reminds us, I'm sorry, David reminds us that we can't solve sin. Listen to how much of this has to be done by God before. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. David wasn't conceived in sin. What is he talking about? We know who David's dad was. We know who his mom was. We know who his brothers were. What is he talking about? He, he, he's saying, look, I was born sinful. I was born evil. I was born with this in me. I need, it's only by the power of God that I could overcome this. And if you're still fighting, I, I have this conversation, I have this conversation on Friday. Are we born evil and society teaches us to be good or are we born good and society teaches us to be bad? Well, let me just, everyone's a parent already knows the answer to this. Because <clears throat> you've had little kids and you did not teach them to smack their sister and take the food away. They did that all on their own. It didn't take any training at all. You had to train them to like, you know, be potty trained. You didn't have to train them to deceive you, to lie to you, to be mean to others. Like they do that all on their own. David's saying, I was conceived in iniquity. 
Since Genesis 3, since the original sin, sin has been passed down through generations, and without Christ there is no hope. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. It's that imagery again of being cleansed, of being, being washed. In fact, purge me with hyssop is a direct uh, it's, it's a direct set of images that they would have used in sort of the sacrificial nature of the, the priest would cleanse someone of like leprosy by taking this hyssop and dipping it in the blood and sprinkling, right? And in this process, they're, they're cleansing someone of, of leprosy. And he's saying like, man, my sin is like having a disease. And I need you to cleanse me of it. And then he adds this extra image of being made whiter than snow. Now, First of all, that's, that's a great image. But secondly, like, imagine, this is 800 BC or something. Imagine trying to keep anything white as snow without a washing machine and bleach. And like, like what he's saying is like, you can do the impossible. Only you can create this in us. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. For the believer, you put your faith in Christ, you're saved, you have salvation, you have a relationship with God, you're going to heaven, and yet there's this unrepentant sin in your life. What does it do? Does it kill you? Does it send you to hell? No, 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 no. Listen, what, what it does is it distorts your relationship with the heavenly father. It breaks this vertical relationship where you're not now in communing with the father because you have sin in his presence that you won't deal with. He's willing to deal with it. You won't deal with it. And what it kills is joy because there's no joy in Christ when you're hanging on to the sin in your life. You don't get both. He says, heal the bones that you've broken. I would submit to you that as a believer, when there's sin that you are aware of in your life, that you're tolerating in your life, you know it's there, you refuse to deal with it, that all spiritual growth stops. I cannot find a place in the Bible that would tell you that you can grow in closeness with the Lord, that you can grow in holiness, that you can grow in Christ-likeness in one area in your life when you're tolerating sin that you know about in another area. See, we like to tell ourselves we can, okay? This is the human deception, is we like to say, I'm gonna compartmentalize this, and that part that I'm dealing with, I'm gonna put it over here in the closet and close the door so that the guests can come over and everything's good, and like this 5% might be a wreck, but the 95% over here is fine, and I'm just gonna keep growing with the Lord over here, and I'll deal with this some other time, but that doesn't ever work. You just, do, you just stop growing, or even worse, you actually just start regressing, and you wonder why there's no joy, no passion, no authenticity in your faith, and you're like, man, this 95% so good, why is it not working? Because you won't deal with what's over here. Your bones are broken. Broken bones don't grow. They have to mend first. We, we have to deal with the stuff we know. Look, you're going to have blind spots. You're going to miss stuff. You're going to offend someone and not know it. I, we're all going to make mistakes like that. But I'm talking about the sin you know about. Someone's brought it to your attention. The Nathan has showed up in your life, and you're like, mm, that's just your opinion, brother. 
You imagine David sitting in front of Nathan trying to justify? Listen, I don't think he realized like my needs as a man. I don't know if you understand the situation, Nathan. I, I, I can hear it now. No, they, you want joy as a believer, you, got, you have to deal with the sin that you know about because it stops all spiritual growth. And so what David is showing us here, and I want to walk through, is he's giving us a formula for repentance. And let me tell you how strong repentance is. Repentance is so strong in the Bible and in this... It, 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 in one Psalm, just in Psalm 51, he goes from like worst case scenario, the depths of the depths, the valley of the shadow of death. I mean, just he has wrecked his life. And by the end, he's like, I am singing about God's righteousness. And you're like, what? That's what repentance does. Repentance doesn't say, listen, wait and be sorrow, you know, sorrowful for a year or two, and then you can have joy again. Repentance says, by the end of the story, you're coming like you're not even at the end of the chapter and you're already going to have joy. That's how quick it is because God's dealing with it. Repentance should be a daily, weekly, normal occurrence for a believer. Now, there's been some debate about this in, in Christian circles. Like I've talked to Christians in, in our church at times who really believe that repentance by and large, when it's mentioned in the Bible, just happens at the point that you're saved. And that once you're saved and Jesus has forgiven all your sins, you never really need to repent again because you did that one time. Two problems with that. The first is kind of anecdotal. That's like saying, um, Honey, I told you I loved you when we got married. I don't know why. If anything changes, I'll let you know. The second is biblical. Go to Acts 19, 19 in Ephesus. That story where um, everyone, you remember the story, right? Everyone comes under great fear and reverence for the Lord because there are those fake uh, exorcists that try to use Paul's name to cast out a demon and the demon takes control of the man and beats all of them senseless and naked. And they, yeah. Anyways, that story, it's fun. You should read your Bible. It's really funny. And the whole town, the, all the, the church members in Ephesus come under great fear and conviction and realize they have hidden sin because they, they have this, these idols in the form of magic books that they've been hiding and no one, and it's the Christians that go pull all that out of their house. They take it to the town square and they burn it publicly. That's public repentance, Acts 19, 19. Matthew 6, 9 through 13, when Jesus actually teaches us how to pray and what do we ask for every single day? Forgiveness for our trespasses. James 5, 16, when it says confess your sins to one another. Revelation 2, 4 and 5, when an entire church is called out for their apathy and their lukewarm passion when it comes to following Jesus and their word to the church is repent. No, I'm sorry, it's not a one-time thing. It's a daily, weekly occurrence where the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit that he put in us, convicts us and moves us to repentance. And unfortunately, in the American church, we don't like repentance because then we'd have to actually admit to the people sitting around us that we did something wrong. I mean, why did I put on these nice church clothes if I have to admit I did something wrong? But that's not what church was meant to be. Four parts that we're going to see in verse 4. Psalm 51, verse four, four parts that will tell us what repentance is supposed to look like. Four parts. We have to see the sin, and we're going to talk about that specifically. Confess, 
mourn or hate it, and change. See, confess, mourn, change. See, confess, mourn, change. Verse four says this, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Okay, when we say see your sin, I know you know about it. It's not see your sin and know about it. It is see your sin the way God sees your sin. It is calibrating your conscience and my conscience to God's sight. It's not, it doesn't say against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in my mom's sight. Mom probably had good rules. That's not whose sight we calibrate to. It's not, and done what is evil in my friend's sight, or done what is evil in culture's sight, or done what is evil according to my church, or done what is evil according, here's the worst one, or done what is evil according to me. Because man, me? You wanna, listen, if they gave out medals in justifying your own sin, I got a lot. Amen? Amen. I mean, if there's one thing we're good at, it's justifying our behavior and making sure everyone knows it was probably someone else's fault. No? What what does Eve do in the garden? Oh, it was the serpent's fault. He he clearly made me do it. What does Adam do? Listen, God, uh, the woman that you gave me? (laughs) What is he saying? God, I think you have to take at least a little credit for this sin. You made her and then gave her to me. I mean, I have to put up with her. Do do, do you know before David is called to repentance, he does this too? When he writes the letter to the general, after he has Uriah killed, he writes a letter back to the guy. And he goes, hey, don't don't worry about the fact that we just killed Uriah. People die in war all the time. It's the Amorites' fault. They killed him. It's not our fault. We don't calibrate our conscience to our own heart. Just side note, you know, one of the problems I have with all these Disney animated movies, it's always follow your heart. No, do not do that. All the time telling my kids, you, when, when your emotions and the Bible disagree, listen to the Bible. You're wrong. If not, you're saying God's wrong. (laughs) Follow your heart. You're not going to hear in the Bible. You know what you're going to hear in the Bible? You're going to hear the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? (laughs) That's what you're following when you follow your heart. Don't do that. Jimmy Crickets, what would he say? Let your conscience be your guide. How's that working out for you? I mean, let's think about it. A serial killer is following his conscience. Make it okay? You have to have your sight aligned to God's sight. Look, if we did, listen, this is the practical application. If we could see our sin the way God sees our sin, it, it probably is not changing how we feel about murder and adultery. Maybe adultery, but, but murder but I guarantee you it's going to change how you see your gossip. It's going to change how you see your indifference to your brother and sister sitting in the pew next to you. It's going to change how you see your apathy 
when it comes to helping others. Like it's going, to, when you see your sin the way God sees it, when you calibrate your conscience to God's sight, it will change our perspective of things in our life for the better, not the worse. Because we'll see them the way God sees them. Secondly, second part is confess. So to confess, we have to take responsibility. And we just finished talking about how we, we love to not take responsibility for our own sin. David says, I have sinned. There's no partial portion of that. That is not to say there aren't lots of things that go on around you when you sin. Maybe they're part of that as temptation, maybe not, but you have a responsibility in sin. Tim Keller uses an analogy. He says, you know, if you, if you pick up a log from just one side and you try to throw the log, it's generally pretty ineffective. Like it kind of just drops back down at best. Maybe you flip it. You can't throw it anywhere, but if you'll pick up the entire burden, you can cast it off. And it works the same way with our sin. You can't take partial credit for sin and then think that you're actually going to be able to confess. That would sound something like this. Uh, Jonathan, brother, uh, I'm really sorry that uh, you took what I said the wrong way. I don't know if you were just having a bad day or uh, something like that, but uh, I definitely didn't mean it that way. Like I, no, hey man, I, I am sorry that my words impacted you the way they did. I apologize. There is a difference between a partial confession and a real confession, amen? amen? Not only do we know that intrinsically, once again, if you've had children, well, I only hit her because she called me ugly. You've got, we've got to, if we'll see our sin the way God sees our sin, then we can take credit for our sin, which is how we confess. He actually says, David says, against you and you only have I sinned. Oh, that's so good. Why? Why does he say that? He's not trying to make a theological point about how we sin against God before we sin against others. That's true. That's not what he's trying to do. He's actually saying that because he didn't, he didn't sin against God's law, like law. He did, but that's not what he's concerned with. He sinned against the God who loved him. He hurt someone who loved him. That's why verses one and two are so thick in, in the richness of God's love is he has this realization of how he's hurt God. Until, until we see others the way God sees them, it's difficult to understand how impactful it is when we hurt other people. Like for instance, if, if, if you were an atheist and you didn't believe in a creator, who created people in his image, you'd have a very difficult time selling me on the objective value of human life. Like, how can you tell me a human life is really worth anything more than a rock if you don't believe it was a creator who knitted that person together in their own image? When, when, when we do something that hurts someone that's really close to us in a close relationship, a really good friend, a relative, a spouse, you're primarily not concerned that you broke a rule. You're concerned that you hurt that person. And that's where confession really comes in, is understanding that it, we're directly in rebellion against the heart of God. The third point there is that we would mourn or hate our sin that there would be a real regret. And we hear about that in 2 Corinthians 7.10. I just want you to just kind of read this. It says, 
For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. What will happen if we see our sin the way God sees it? And if we'll see people the way that he sees them? And if we'll take credit for what we've done, it actually produces in us a real lament, a real sorrow, a real hate of that sin, the way God hates it. And that, those three things, those three things will lead us to real change. So if you've been struggling with habitual sin, if you've been struggling with sin you keep falling back into, if you've been struggling wondering whether or not you, you really do have freedom over sin or you're just a bond, bond servant to sin, like, like, why is this not working? Why do I find myself in these repetitive patterns? I would tell you that those three things actually do lead to real change in us. And that's the Psalm shows us this in the scripture because David goes from this lament of, of, of taking credit for and publicly repenting for what he's done, mourning over it, and then that change leads him to real joy. And by the end of the scripture, he's singing of God's righteousness. The absolute incredible part of the gospel is that we would get to come in here as people who know we're just a mess and we've made a wreck of it over and over again. And yet we get to sing of God's righteousness because of what he's doing in us. This is why Jesus had to come. Jesus had to come to give us a way through this sin so that we would just sit in this pit of despair over and over again like there was no hope. And David says in verse 10, create in me a clean heart. It's like he already knows, man, there's something in my heart that's wrong and I need a new heart. Amen. We see all of these prophecies in the Old Testament that say the same thing. In Ezekiel 36, 26, it says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That's why the New Testament constantly speaks of being born again. The Holy Spirit creates in us this new heart, this law of the spirit that puts to death the law of the sin and death. I want you to leave here with one of two things today. If you, if you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, I mean, if you don't have a faith in Christ and life is just generally hopeless and you've tried a number of different things and you wonder why, it just doesn't seem to getting, be getting any better. I would point you right here and say, it can't on your own. You need someone to put a new heart in you. And that's what Jesus will do if you're willing. He will cut out that heart of stone and he will put a heart of flesh in you and he will write his spirit directly on it. And, and for you, the believer who knows Jesus and yet you just feel like you can't shake this sin, I want you to hear this. This is Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For you, the believer who seems to struggle, I would just point you right back here. God loves you. He sent his son for you. And he sent his son, not simply so that you could be saved, but so that you could have an ongoing, passionate, vibrant relationship with him. And inevitably, you and I will find ourselves at some point in our walk 
messing around with sin we shouldn't have, we'll find out about it, and we have a decision when we're walking down the path of sin to turn around and cling to Jesus. And if you'll do that, at any point down that path, it doesn't matter how far down you go, just cry out to God, lay it out on the table, pull it out of the closet. It's not actually hidden to him anyways. When you're hiding your sin from God, it's like the little two-year-old playing hide-and-go-seek that stuffs their head in the pillow cushion with their butt sticking up in the air, and they're like, can't find me. He sees it, he knows it, and he's waiting for you simply to ask for that help, which is repentance. I'm going to do this. I'm going to pray for us. If you don't know Jesus as your personal savior and you're watching and joining us online today, I'd just like you to reach out to one of the hosts in chat. Tell them you'd like to have a conversation about that. If you're here today, we're going to have elders and pastors that are up front here at the altar that would love to just talk to you about what that looks like. But if you're a believer and you know Jesus, but what you realize is that there's been sin that's been tucked in that closet for a long time and you've done your best to try to leave it over there and get on with things, but they don't seem to be getting on because there's no real progress when you won't deal with what's in the closet. I'm giving you an opportunity to just come up to the altar. You can lay that here. You can lay that burden on Jesus, which is by the way, the design from the beginning of creation. And you can walk away without the yoke, without the burden, in his rest, which is what he has for you. We'll also have people that are willing to pray with you if you need that as well. Let me pray for us. I'm going to offer you time at the altar, and then we'll close our service. Father God, thank you for your son. Thank you for providing us a way to just live in joy. Worshiping you and loving you, God. Thank you for cleaning us up over and over again. Where there's just no limit on your forgiveness and on your grace and your mercy, God. Help us to be a people that are ready to repent, ready to just hand these things over to you and walk with you. God, we thank you for the work you're doing in our church. We thank you for the work you're doing in each individual that's here and online. In Jesus' name, amen.